I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. So 2020 was an exciting year on many fronts. So for us at Access Ventures, we launched a podcast, uh, More Than Profit, and we are now two seasons in, uh, over 25 episodes, and it's, it's been a fun learning experience. And so today, as we kind of tee up season three uh, for More Than Profit, uh, I'm excited to have uh, two of my dear friends on the podcast with me. Um, and we're talking really about the stuff that is really complicated uh, and, and less um, sexy sometimes when you're talking about just finance and return and risk and all of those different things. Um, and what we felt was important to have this discussion because a lot of the work people see specifically about Access Ventures is more related to that really easy, tangible, direct strategy, um, whether it's a direct investment into a new new uh, company or the direct efforts where we're working with creators in a local community, the things that people can really tangibly put their fingers on, um, that's always been a lot easier both to... Uh, to tell the story and for uh, people to understand. The thing that's really complicated, um, we found, is to kind of look at the overall asset structure uh, of an institution, of an endowment, uh, and to talk about these various asset classes. And, and so to talk about, like, how do you think about fixed income? How do you think about alternatives? How do you think about the public equities and align these various asset classes with, with your purpose, your mission, your vision as an organization or as a person? And so today I've got TJ Abood, uh, who has been at Access Ventures with me almost since the very, very, very beginning. He's the chief investment officer. He's been on a previous episode talking about cryptos and the blockchain, um, but he, he runs our, our overall capital strategy at Access Ventures. So I'm excited to have him on the podcast. And then Robert Kim, we'll get to him a little bit later. Uh, but he's one of our outside managers that helps us really identify fund managers, strategies, helps us think thoughtfully about just what we need operationally and then just the long-term deployment of our assets uh, and to align those. So TJ, I want to start with you. Um, really talk to me. So you and I have worked together for so long, but I always think it's important to start first with the person and who they are and what brought them to this work. And so... What's some of your background that's helpful for this conversation around conscious construction, endowment management, uh, multi-asset strategies? Walk us through, walk our listeners through kind of your story uh, and kind of what, what, you, what got you to Access Ventures to begin with. So I studied accounting in school and uh, knew from the beginning I didn't want to be an accountant. So I <laughs> uh, got into institutional banking and I was in one of those cohorts that comes in and you get to see all different aspects of banking and you kind of chart your course from there. And so I was able to do many things. One was, um, you know, trading derivatives. Uh, another was more on the internal economic council, um, lending, uh, private equity investments, things like that. And it was, it was great coming out of school, um, not knowing really anything about how that world works. And it was really good training. And then I ended up going into private equity from there. And we had a pretty specific focus in home care, and we ran a roll-up strategy in different parts of the country. And so I spent eight years doing that. A lot of direct deals, um, both on the buy side, sell side, and it was, uh, it was fun. And again, continued learning experience. So early age, early career, able to work with executives of all of our portfolio companies. And um, from there, uh, I began to think differently about my work. Um, I, I, I liked what I was doing. PE is great. It's wonderful and it's a good career in many respects. Our particular um, model was difficult because uh, it's very you know, low to no skilled work and there is not a good reimbursement rate from uh, state and federal um, uh, agencies. And so in order to be successful, you needed to manage your, um, your wages. Therefore we had thousands of employees at minimum wage and it was, it was difficult because we were able to reap all of these rewards and return, um, you know, strong, uh, IRR to our investors, but we had all these people that remained in poverty. Mm -hmm. And so that, 
that got me thinking differently about how we deploy our capital and how we view our work. Yeah. And so um, not too long after that, uh, I joined you here. I think that's an important journey. Uh, and I'm glad you kind of walked through a little bit how you got there. Because I think a lot of people wrestle with that. You know, just they get into it. It's exciting. They have a mind for it. You know, like, so there's not disputing the, the abilities that many people have where they just they get attracted to numbers and, and how money works. Um, but then you find yourself in it and you realize these negative externalities that are the result of pretty basic business decisions. Um, and I think when you kind of peel that back a little bit and you recognize on the other end of that equation is a person or a community, sometimes that makes it difficult and a lot of people end up grappling with it. So you, so you came over to AV um, where we've tried, you know, since our inception to do things a little bit differently, um, but it's been a journey. And so I think that's some of, the, some of it too, is I think sometimes for organizations like Access Ventures, if people are looking from the outside in, there's a, sometimes a response that I get where I, I don't know where even to begin or I don't know how you got there or wow, you guys seem to just be doing it well, which is a great compliment. And I, and I, and I'm thankful for that. Um, but I do feel like it's a constant journey, uh, internally. So you and I, we, we're constantly talking about these things. Uh, and it wasn't something that just happened. You know, we didn't just arrive at this. It took time and, and effort. So kind of, so you came into AV, uh, what were we doing? So Flash, you know, think back. What were we doing at that point, uh, and where are we now? So, you know, in a short order, how how did we go from those early days of AV where you came in and the focus to now, where we're having a conversation around a multi-asset strategy um, that's pretty robust? Sure. So when I came in, um, the the long-term future of AV was um, really to deploy the capital we had in meaningful ways to improve uh, the lives of individuals and communities. And um, ultimately was to take all of the capital and deploy it and then manage it out from there. And so we had a very um, low risk public portfolio because we wanted to ensure that all of the capital we were entrusted with went to uh, the beneficiaries of our programs. And, uh, and so we found ourselves doing a lot of direct deals. Um, so we, we owned tons of real estate. Um, and then we, we started to see um, a way to shape the values of companies at their inception. And so we started to be uh, more active in venture um, and finding companies that we knew when we sat down with them they aligned with our values and we felt like we could support them. Hmm. So fast forward, we loved what we were doing and said, well, why don't we, why don't we see if we could do this for much longer than anticipated? And so we were able to bring in more capital. And at that point, our strategy had to change. We had to think more long-term and we had to structure a portfolio in a more traditional sense. And from there we were, um, we began to, to see how difficult it is to have values in a portfolio that's not closely held. And, and so that brings us to the portfolio we have today. And I can go deeper into that, um, but I'll pause there. Yeah, no, that's it's helpful. And I think, uh, so the one word you've used a couple of times is values. Um, and you know we've, we've published a white paper on this notion of a one pocket mindset and kind of bringing your vision, your purpose, your values into the discussion related to what you want your capital to do and what you want your organization to be in the world. Um, but help, help us pull back the onion a little bit and, and say, op open that up and say, uh, how do we arrive at these values you talk about? Uh, because I think that's an interesting thing. It's an exercise that individuals can do or corporations can do. But what, when you say our values are reflected in these direct deals or in the activities that we pursue, how, how, do we, how have we arrived at that as an organization? What does that look like and, and how is that ever evolving? Well, the, the structure of Access Ventures as a 501c3 um, with a very detailed charitable purpose, uh, w we have a leg up on folks that are generally trying to take a um, nondescript portfolio into one that's aligned with their values. And so Access Ventures was set up um, to create an inclusive and creative economy in, in many different respects. And so starting there and valuing people and valuing place 
you can begin to look at assets and say, okay, these are um, components of a portfolio that do reflect that. We see that people are valued. Uh, we see that through board construction. We see that through um, the, the employee policies and benefits. Um, and then you can see how they care for their place, whether it's environmental concerns or the real estate that they own and how they treat their tenants. So Robert, let's turn over to you get you into the conversation, then we'll kind of keep going from there. But so you work with the Caprock Group based out of California. And, you know, we came into kind of a relationship with you several years ago. And talk to me a little bit about kind of the work that you do. Um, I think specifically it'd be good to kind of hear a little bit about Caprock. Uh, some people are going to be familiar with kind of the work that Caprock does uh, with different clients across the, across the country. Um, but then also I'd love to kind of pull that also back to your own personal journey of how you arrived at Caprock, kind of what you've done historically and how you try to bring some of that experience and, and passion into the work that you do at the Caprock Group. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure here uh, to be here with you. Uh, I'll start with very briefly my personal journey and then talk about our firm and what we do. Um, you know, my, my story, the reason I got into impact investing um, is through a lot of the different uh, trips I've gone on to different parts of the world. And, and I won't share, you know, every one of them, but one of them was to Mongolia. It was um, back in 2011, 12. Um, and I met a 14-year-old. A uh, her name is Padam. Uh, she was an orphan. Uh, so she would wake up like five in the morning to buy, you know, milk at a wholesale price and then on the way to school, sell them at a retail price. And that's how she sort of supported uh, her grandparents and her younger brother. Uh, but she was number one in her state in math and science um, at school, but she didn't have enough uh, means to pursue college. And that uh, that really spoke volume to me. And I, and I remember at that point I was doing, I was at Accenture doing strategy consulting work. And specifically I was helping large tech companies start new businesses inside of their own sort of larger umbrella. Um, and so I understood the power of a business, entrepreneurship, and uh, the funding sort of mechanism and the, the power of capital markets. And I remember thinking, like, how come the capital markets is not, you know, looking at her profile, right? Why is philanthropic sort of capital the only source of capital that we can lend to her? And so that sort of question stayed with me for, for, for a while. Um, and then long story short, I decided that I wanted to, you know, spend majority of my career, um, you know, stored in capital toward uh, someone like her, toward a community uh, like her, where they are in a vulnerable position, right, in a position of suffering, yet they have just raw talent, you know, that, and, and to sort of, um, um, you know, close down the, the bias that we may have towards somewhat of a, a vulnerable community and really see their, their potential. And so, that was sort of the the motive getting getting into this space. Um, I, so after that um, consulting work, I did some venture investing, investing into entrepreneurs at a seed and Series A uh, stage uh, who are trying to solve the food issue, uh, the education issue, the financial inclusion issue here in the U.S. Um, and then in 2013, I was recruited to Caprock. And so we are a multifamily office. Uh, we work with high net worth individual families, you know, private family foundations, but also we start to work with uh, more of an institutional uh, asset owners as well, uh, like private operating foundation or donor advice fund sponsors. And so our main role is to serve as an outsourced CIO, CFO. And so we're responsible for um, understanding our, our families and clients' mission and their financial objectives and helping them execute that, plan that out and monitor that and, and manage that toward their objectives. And so that's in short what we do. We have offices, I believe, around six different locations. We manage um, close to six billion at this point. And it's been a real pleasure um, sort of being in this space and, and working side along with someone like you guys underlying fund managers who have really risked their career to start something very innovative, right? And so uh, it's a real pleasure to be part of this ecosystem. So you've been um, working with Access Ventures for the last couple of years, um, and it's been a pleasure. Um, and I think one of the things we talk about, both at, in the work that we do with the Caprock Group, but just internally, as TG and I get together on a regular basis. So his day-to-day, -day obviously, is watching all this stuff. Uh, but he and I kind of work on it. Um, it, generally at least quarterly to kind of see okay, what are we working on, what are we focused on, what do we need operationally, and then what impact does that have on our long-term capital strategy and allocations. Um, 
but one of the things like our kind of driving mantra is like always getting better. Uh, and so I can, you know, confidently access ventures. When we look at our portfolio, it's taken us, you know, a couple of different uh, managers to, to get to that point, the internal journey of, of the alignment of values and, and mission and, and the uh, allocations. Um, but we're always trying to figure out ways to improve that, um, ways to get better at uh, identifying fund managers, the, the impact me- measurements of those fund managers, the reporting. Um, because I can say right now, I mean, I think last numbers, Robert, you could kind of correct us, but about 91% of our overall portfolio would be what we would de- declare as like positively aligned with our mission. And the rest of that is some derivation of cash, gold, uh, fixed incomes that are more neutral. Um, and so definitely scrubbed out the negatives, at least as far as possible. Um, kind of walk us through TJ, Robert, like when, when somebody says conscious construction, now that phrase has been out there for a while, uh, hair on foundation, I think originally conceived of this notion of like consciously constructing a portfolio. But as we look at it, um, what does that mean? So for the person on the street, uh, and I'd like to try to think about it from both an organization so an access ventures, an endowment, um, and also a person. Because I, I don't know if they're necessarily different, but I think some of our listeners are going to be, I'm an individual, I invest. How do I think about this? What can I do? So there's an individual consideration, and I think there's an organizational consideration. So it's helpful for TJ when he first kind of started off to say, okay, at the top level, AV is a 501c3 with a lot of different activities. So we kind of have that going for us, thinking about inclusive and creative. But as, as we talk about consciously constructing uh, a portfolio, what does that mean? And, what, and is there any difference between how a person might think about that or an organization? Maybe I'll start with you, Robert, and then TJ you can jump over as well. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it could, there, I mean, we could spend hours talking about it, but the, um, I do think there is some minor differences, but overall pretty similar uh, in terms of whether it's an individual or a you know family foundation or a private operating foundation. I think each organization type does bring its own unique sort of uh, elements that help shape the overall objective. Uh, but at large, a concept the concept of construction, uh, the conscious construction of the portfolio is very similar. So what is it? Um, in a historically, you know, asset owners used to manage their assets just strictly around their financial objectives, whether that's financial return objectives or liquidity, um, income needs and things like that, um, risk. Um, and increasingly more and more individuals and institutions are asking, hey, we wanna do more with what we have. We not only wanna make as much as money as possible uh, within reasons and give it away, but we also wanna, while it's invested, uh, at least do no harm, but but better yet, do some create some active impact. And so. Uh, cons- uh, the conscious construction portfolio simply means that you not only look at your financial objectives, but you put the mission of your organization or of an individual uh, or the family at the center of designing the, uh, the portfolio. And so it does require intentionally designing your portfolio and um, conscious construction simply means that you put the mission of your family, the values of it at the center of it, not on the side, right? You. Uh, while you do care about what is it that I want to generate in, in terms of financial return, uh, you also ask the same question of what do I want this money to do, right? And so uh, there's much more detail, and, and we can probably talk about the how that happens, but I'll, I'll pause there in terms of w- what it is. Yeah, I think we'll stick with you for a second, then I'm going to go over to, to TJ. But So you're working with a client. A client comes in to the Caprock Group, um, and... How do you work with them on that? So I, I, get, I get that they may arrive at different different conclusions based upon their own risk tolerances, re- desired return, and, and some of the you know the basic things that you want your money to do. But how do you help introduce? And what does that journey look like for a client to, that that may one may not even know that this is possible or even a thing, uh, or two once they're like, oh, okay, I, I do have personal values. I do have an interest. I mean, I have a Maybe they have a family foundation or some sort of donor advised fund and a community foundation that's doing something that they would say is good in the world aligned with who they are. And then all of a sudden they have this discussion around, oh, wait a minute. Oh, wow. I, you mean I could potentially in some fashion align my uh, investment strategy with that as well? That's, that's pretty cool. How do you do that with a client? What does that look like on that journey? Yeah. Um, and as you point out, it's super important to get the, the financial architecture 
down first, right? That, that creates sort of this comfort zone where you can be creative within that uh, zone. Uh, so setting that aside, you know, after we work through real, real quick, if I could, Robert, yeah. I think that is awesome. You started there because I think sometimes when I have conversations with people, individuals, um, they don't want to talk about that. There's almost a, there's either an embarrassment or, but there is an expectation of capital. Like even me as an individual, I, there are things that I need to do to provide for my own family, to plan for the future, to care for my community. And I think that's an important thing. And I think Honestly, once you can get past that, then you can start to say, okay, within that construct, here's what we can do with that. Yeah. Here's how we can get creative. And it's a liberating experience because I don't think we should put on the side, push to the side rather, uh, the expectation of that capital before we start talking about these things. Because it, if we start talking about these things and then we try to jam in capital, like it, that's when you get a mismatch oftentimes. That's when people start to get frustrated because it's underperforming financially. When we started over here and said, well, wait a minute, like what you, what you declared as a desire for the world doesn't necessarily fit that financial model. If we want to talk about financial models, let's talk about that. And then what works within that. So I think it's really helpful to, to start there. And I'm glad you, I'm glad you went there. So what, after that, what do you, what do you do? Yeah. And so, um, you know, that's, as you were talking about something sort of hit my head, the, and what, what ends up happening is you create that sort of financial architecture, right? And then you talk about the impact, which will, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and that over time, it's a journey, right? You talk about the, over, the theme of getting better. Um, it changes. And, and as you learn more about the investing and the community you serve, even your financial architecture can change. So it's not, you set a stone and then sort of it's permanent, right? It, it can change, it's dynamic. Um, so on the impact side, you know, most folks uh, come with sort of a broad level of what, what is it they want to do in terms of their mission, right? As an example, it's like, I want to help serve underserved youth. And that's very, very broad, right? Where, right? What age group specifically? How do you want to contribute to the flourishing of that child, right? And so what we do is the, the result of developing a financial architecture is essentially getting to a long-term target level for each asset class. So cash, fixed income, public equity, alternatives, real assets, private investments. So you have that right, on one hand. And what we say is, okay, you care about a uh, well-being of a child. What components do you need to, or can you contribute to, right? And it's not just innovative education, digital technology, right? Of course you need that, right? But you also need parents at home at reasonable hours. That means you need an affordable housing around where the parents work. Like if they commute three hours, right, and you get home at nine, ten, they're not gonna, they're gonna be too tired to care for and nurture, right, their children. Um, so affordable housing is a is a component. Um, you also, you know, they oftentimes in low income community they have two, three jobs, right, and so we need a a, a business environment or a culture where um, it, within the low income community, it, it has a model to grow them, not just view them as a, a labor, but to grow them into senior management and, and better yet, what if you include them as a part of a, an option? So when, when the company sells, they benefit, everybody benefits, right? And so that's sort of a conscious business management process right there, right? And so you already identified education, digital technology that fits in within venture asset class, right? Affordable housing fits under real assets, right? And then this sort of you can make senior uh, secure loans to businesses that really care for all employees, including those in low income community. And so that's a private credit. Right. And so all of a sudden you break one sort of a broad issue into different subcomponents. And then all of a sudden you get into a diversified portfolio by only, not only by theme, the impact thing, but also by asset class. And that helps ensure sort of that we achieve that the financial objective. Um, and, you know, one one thing that I want to mention about financial objective, it isn't just make as much money as possible for, for surprisingly for <laughs> that majority of folks uh, that we work with, it's not necessarily get hitting the home run, right? It's right. really, it really comes down to managing risk. doesn't mean they're risk averse all the time, but it's just about managing risk. And so, um, but yeah, that's sort of the process we walk through. Yeah. That's, that's helpful. No, that's great. And I think, I think that's, that's what we all are trying to do. Right. I mean, personally, um, managing risk and saying, okay, I need to, I want to take risk. I think we all at some level want to be risk takers, especially at different ages, right? Um, where we have the willingness to, to be a little bit more creative and risky, but not to the detriment of our long-term future, um, the opportunities for our family and our children. Um, and so I think you're right, managing that risk. And then within that, 
once you get to understand that that risk profile of that person or that organization, it's really, really helpful. So TJ, turning to you. So, you know, we've worked with Caprock Group, but even internally, one of the things you and I have been working on, I think you've been really helpful in, in dis- designing is is a framework to kind of really evaluate opportunities uh, and to pursue intentional construction. And I love, Robert, what you brought in as well. I think there's a, there's a notion of like conscious construction, but consciously constructing a dynamic portfolio. Uh, a dynamic portfolio meaning that it's constantly going to be changing. It's going to constantly be um, um, adjusting to what's happening in the market, what's happening in the world, um, and what our own interests and desires are. Uh, so TJ, talk to us a little bit about what you think about and how, how we pursue that at Access Ventures. We break down kind of our mission considerations into six different components. And one of the things that is different from, for Access Ventures versus the individual, like you all mentioned before, is that we are able to invest in more asset classes and we have more opportunities to seek out investments than a traditional person that's running a stock bond and a few other thing portfolio. And so our, um, our construction takes that into account. And so when we look at an opportunity, we first assess, is this on mission for us? What is the impact of this company? And does it, uh, does it align with what we care about? And to Robert's point, there is a financial component. We can't ignore it. Um, and there isn't as much tension between those two things as one might think. Um, if you're able to find a lot of investment options. But once we go back there or past that, liquidity, risk, these things that we need to manage to be prudent um, with our capital. Um, and then there's a couple of things that are unique to AV. One is um, we look at the network. So who are we investing in? Um, because we, we have this audacious goal of changing the way the world invests. We're doing something different. And so the more people we can work with, um, the more we can, we can learn, um, but we can collaborate and begin to expand our sphere of influence so that folks can see what we're doing and they can get excited and say, hey, I'd like to do that as well. And then lastly, um, we have experience. Bryce has called this fun in the past, um, but ultimately, <laughs> what, what can we really truly learn? We don't have, uh, we haven't cornered the market on ideas. And so Access Ventures, um, we seek to learn from our managers. Um, What are they doing? How are they doing it differently? And then how would that impact our portfolio across the board? So that's how we think about it here. Yeah, I think we should still call it fun. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Because I think you're, I mean, experience is a better word to capture it for sure. But I think ultimately that's what we're after is, is the... The, re- the, the definition of fun that I would have is an opportunity to learn, to be exposed to different people and cultures and, um, and uh, ways of, of doing these things. And so one of the things that I think is unique, and I'm just going to piggyback off what TJ just said, is I think it's important for investors, whether that's institutional investors like an Access Ventures or private investors, to get involved, visit, talk to meet with these fund managers, see what they're doing. A couple of things are going to happen. One, you're going to learn a, ta- a lot. Two, you're going to be able to maybe influence some of their own thinking. Um, because I found that, I, that a lot of times when I talk to fund managers or portfolio companies on the direct side, they, they really relish that. They don't, they're just trying stuff. They're out there doing the best that they can do. And there is something that you can do and bring to contribute to that. And then I think thirdly, um, you're going you're gonna to get a better appreciation for how your money is being put to work, the complexity and the difficulties that those fund managers are facing on a day-in and day-out basis, and why when they come back with kind of their financial reports or their impact reports or whatever, uh, you're able to nuance that. You're able to put flesh and bone, story, experience to those numbers. Um, and I think see those from a, from a different perspective, not not downgrading the performance. We're not talking about that. I think sometimes people misconstrue kind of impact as concessionary. Um, we're talking about folks out there beating benchmarks, um, doing great things, aligning values, pursuing impact, um, but they're still running into problems just like everybody. So 
uh, I'm going to turn on that to to both of you, and probably either of you can pick it up. But I think we've had this conversation offline a lot, especially kind of going into an end of year annual report season. But this idea of benchmarking, so it's really really easy. I think one of the reasons a lot of people avoid some of this work is because I can look at a balance sheet. I can look at uh, whatever, and I can see how the performance of that company or that fund is. I have something to compare it against, the benchmark. So let's talk there. The difficulties oftentimes around consciously constructing this dynamic portfolio. What do you compare it to, right? How? What does that look like? And so there's the old 60-40. So I think some of our listeners aren't going to have any clue what we're talking about. So I think it's important to start first by defining what is benchmarking, why, how we got here, what are some of the examples of that? So maybe, Robert, if you could start with that, what is benchmarking? What are we talking about? Why is this a hard thing for, for organizations to really figure out in this, in this space? Yeah, and, and, and for our conversation specifically, we're talking about financial uh, benchmark. And so... Why is it important? Um, I kind of go back to the, the sort of what we talked about earlier. Like uh, when we first work with our clients, uh, it starts with sort of this question of what matters most to them, right? And as, as a part of that, we, you know, we come up with financial needs and, and all sorts of things like that. Um, and what's really important for asset owners isn't necessarily beating S&P 500, right? It would have been really easy to beat that in 08, 09. It would have been really easy to beat that in March of 2020, right? Um, but the, the most important question is, am I, is this portfolio achieving my financial objective? Um, and, and therefore there is a need to, uh, understand your benchmark. What is it that I need to achieve, right? What is my personal benchmark? And so, uh, we use all those, you know, uh, in indexes like the MSCI all country world index for stocks, you know, the Barclays Act for the fixed income and all, all, all sorts of things. Um, but the, the more important question for our clients, at least, is that's great. You know, is my equity portfolio beating the S&P 500? That's great. Uh, but what about the whole portfolio? Is it achieving my objective? And so uh, it's really hard to answer that, frankly. There's no perfect answer. There, there's, there's so many holes you can, uh, you can poke. But what we found really helpful, since all of our investors are long-term investors uh, over multiple decades, uh, we've come up with what we call a personal benchmark. And so... Uh, without going into the details of what that, what how you how you construct that, it actually essentially meets um, the you know when you take in all the financial considerations that our families or our clients need, we create a, a a plan for the portfolio, and if we execute that plan over a long period of time, I'm talking multi cycles on an annualized basis, what would be the expected returns? And so that is a mental number that we can go back to and say, all right, this year um, uh, we have achieved that or you know, outperform that or underperform that. And here, here are the reasons why. Um, and the more nuanced version of that is, you know, we may not be at the target level that we want to be, right, for all these asset classes. So, you know, why are we not there? How fast are we moving toward it? And so because they know that at the end of the day, if they're at the target level, uh, as we want to uh, construct it, over a multiple cycle on an annualized basis, they know that they'll achieve their financial objectives. And so that has worked, put peace on our family's mind, understanding that they're long-term investors. Again, not perfect, uh, but that's that's one uh, way that we uh, have designed a benchmark so that our families understand, okay, this year was successful, here's why. This year was not so successful, here are the reasons. Yeah. So TJ, as, as one of those clients, what is that what is that like on our end of it? So talk to that a little bit because it is, it's this, this weird world, especially, I mean, you, you've introduced uh, over the last several years uh, blockchain, uh, the cryptos, to our portfolio. And I think a pretty uh, radical way, uh, a multi-asset strategy for, for blockchain. Um, but what do you benchmark against? You know, where does that even fit into this? So talk to us a little bit about the complexities that we're experiencing, the difficulties there, and what we're kind of left to, to, to try to do. Sure. Um, yeah, hopefully the blockchain work that I've introduced will uh, shape and influence the way Caprock invests as well. <laughs> you, you heard uh, it here first, folks. Robert and I, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, Robert and I spent a lot of time together and um, benchmarking has come up a couple times um, because the difficulty that... Um, personally I run into is we have a personal benchmark. We kind of understand what it's going to take for our 
um, capital plan um, to achieve the, the mission that we have over years and years. Um, but when it comes down to the day-to-day, -day, and this would be just maybe a question back to Robert, would be when we go one, a little bit deeper than the personal benchmark, how do we evaluate our managers? So they have so many different strategies. There is, I've learned through, through the pain of trying to find an answer that doesn't exist. It's benchmarks for individual strategies. It's kind of a fool's game. And so how do you evaluate at a manager level who's performing and who's not performing? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And I think, you know, there are indices uh, for some of those and some of the private managers, I'm assuming you're talking about the non-liquid because um, for the, you know, liquid managers, mm -hmm. there are indices that we, the clear ones that we can compare. For the non-liquid, it's tricky. I mean, there are those uh, indices that are out there, but there could be, you know, you mentioned a blockchain or there could be sort of this like, you know, private credit strategy that is, you know, seven months duration, right? But it's private, it's locked up for one year, right? And so how do you, what's, what's the benchmark for that? And then you can come up with maybe Barclays because overall it's, it's a credit, uh, but that's not fair, right? Um, because it is illiquid, you know, one, one, although even this one year. And so for those, what we do is, you know, when we underwrite them, when we diligence them, uh, we come up with our own expected return for that manager. Um, and and, and what we and, and we say, given the the macroeconomics, the the, the credit uh, environment, um, where the interest rates are, we believe that for the risk that we're taking by investing in them, this is the, a reasonable expected returns. And so that's it's not perfect, but it gives us a mental picture. And then what we do is we talk to them every quarter, and sometimes more frequently, and we say, you know, over the last three months, you've generated X Y Z. Why was it? And why did it underperform by 10 basis points? Or why did it outperform by 50 basis points? And so that's the conversation. It's not, it may not be perfect, but at least gives us a sense of whether or not this manager is tracking toward what they promised. And so for those, you know, strategies where there are no indices, that's what we use at an individual investment level. Yeah, that's and that's good to know. I mean, I think, and we've talked about this before, but I think this podcast is an opportunity for us to bring it out into the open. Because I think one of the difficulties of the benchmarking conversation and the importance of it is there's been a lot of conversation around bringing impact investing or value investing, whatever you want to call it, into the mainstream. But I think one of the difficulties to do that is because is this benchmarking issue. Because like right now what you've described is a personal benchmark. It's 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 privately determined based upon our individual goals as an organization that that is un, like how do i compare that to the performance of another how do i compare access ventures and it and our overall performance as an endowment against any other endowment because right now it's a it's a private personal benchmark and so then what we're left to do is kind of grab you know the 60 40 or you know whatever and we and we and then that's not a great picture because then it's like because there's so much nuance and you want to explain everything so you have all these asterisks next to <laughs> next to what things are because it just isn't a great representation i think the danger and the difficulty there for for that is you know what we need and on the benchmarking space is it's a limiter on scale right because the way we attract more money into this is if that money can see they're not sacrificing return to do this and when we start talking about personal benchmarks uh, or custom benchmarking, that that's pretty squishy. Uh, and so, how do we help move? Like, what are, what needs to happen? Is there anything that we can think of that, that needs to happen to try to begin to move this more towards uh, something that's comparable? You know, apples to apples, oranges to oranges, where we can start to look at this across individuals and organizations to to give a better picture of how this is working. Yeah, you know the. Um... It's funny you mentioned that, you know, we serve sort of 200 core, you know, clients and every one of their portfolio looks different. And so, um, and it's because to your point, everybody is so unique. Every organization is so unique. Uh, but to your point of like outside looking in, right? If they already had sort of this mindset that an you know, impact investing or conscious construction portfolio uh, will lead to concessionary return. If they already have that mindset, the best thing to do is just compare that to 60-40. I mean, 60-40, uh, meaning 60% all country world index, which is global equity, and then 40% Barclays Ag, which is a U.S. fixed income. And so, and that's because that's the most popular one, and uh, that's the one that they're going to be using. 
And so what impact portfolio needs to be able to do is to exceed the performance of the 60-40. And if you think about um, 60-40, it's 60% equity, 40% debt, although they're all liquid. You know, if you look at any investment, it's either an equity or debt too. And so um, in a way, it's not a, a, a far out sort of unreasonable argument to say that 60-40 can be a, a good index. Uh, one, because everybody knows about it. And two is because it's made up of 60% equity and 40% debt. And to teachers credit, you know, if your portfolio is not 60-40, then you can create your own sort of version of it, 40-60, right? 50-50 and see what that does. And that's, that's I think, to somebody, because to, it's a different issue that you're trying to solve, which is scale of the ecosystem. I think to do that really well, you need to use an index or a benchmark that everybody knows of. Well, I think there's a couple things we're trying to solve for, right? And TJ, I'll let you jump in and explain kind of some of the conversations we've had. But, um, but I think I think it's important. One, we wanted to on this on this episode of the podcast kind of talk about conscious construction, the complexity of it, try to dispel some of that, and help people understand how they might step into that. But then also, secondarily, just broadly within the ecosystem to to see this as as TJ said, if if one of our underlying core ideals is to change the way the world invests it, a difficulty for us is to help other people see that this can achieve their financial outcomes while also aligning their purpose in the world and so for that to make sense for that to be possible we've got to come up with and identify ways to compare to those commonly accepted indices so tj you know speak speak a little bit to access ventures and kind of how we think about it because with our portfolio itself it's it's not a 60 40 mix and we're doing some really different things so how do how do we think about that and what are we looking at right now that's a good and a big question um i guess starting at the top one of the things that we're trying to do like you mentioned is is influence others how do we change the way the world invests and um when i think back to when we started building this portfolio bryce i remember just you know folks laughing at us yeah, good luck with that. Um, if a fully impact aligned portfolio, you're never going to win. And, um, and so we've always had uh, not a chip on our shoulder, but maybe a chip on our shoulder to prove that it can be done. And, and so we've, we've always set out to do that. Um, and one of the things that's been beneficial for us is actually showcasing our public equities. Um, because it, it's, it is the most tangible across all organizations. Um, as a passively managed investment fund um, that is impact aligned so through our partners at Ethic, we're able to continue to showcase, take a look at the performance of our portfolio, which in theory is the same as your portfolio. It just doesn't have the same weighting um, within the larger um, groupings. And, and you can see impact alignment has, has performed or outperformed year over year. And so that's made the story very easy um, because you're not asking someone to take a leap into understanding some of these private credit structures. Um, so, so that's how I think um, we can frame up um, the, how to change the way the world invests. Because you know, predominantly folks think that what we're doing would not return something similar if they were doing it. And so kind of breaking it down into manageable pieces is what we do. Yeah, that's great. Well, we could talk literally all day. <laughs> we do actually oftentimes <laughs> about this, but I think <laughs> what we wanted, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, what we wanted to do is just kind of tee up this season because the hope of season three is to really try to dive deeper into some of these various asset classes with the managers themselves, understand what they're doing, the complexity of the structure and the strategy. Uh, so this was a great kind of framework to kind of help understand con conscious construction, how it, we haven't arrived, we haven't figured it out. It's a journey. Um, and so I'm going to ask each of you, I'll start, but like two questions uh, to kind of close this out. What gives you hope related to this work or your work? Uh, and what gives you pause? What, what, what are you concerned about? What are you thinking about? What, 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 uh, so what gives you hope? What gives you pause? And I think the, the thing that gives me hope is conversations like this, uh, conversations like that I've seen and experienced over the last year, 18 months specifically, where there's a lot of excitement around this, um, where there's, there's more of a discussion around your traditional wealth managers or asset holders, really finally seeing this as, as something possible. Uh, and so I think that gives me a lot of hope. 
I think what gives me pause is some of the stuff we started to hit on, which is how do you actually rightly evaluate the performance financially? But then I also think more than that, because I think there are some things like Robert, you said the 60-40, we can pick some things that people are familiar with and say, how are we performing against that? I think the thing does, that does give me pause uh, is a fear of greenwashing and an in, because of the inability of, the, of this ecosystem, this industry to rightly define measure report impact. And so when I say like at Access Ventures, we're trying to always get better, even though I would say we're 91% positively aligned, even within that, there are fund managers and things that it, where it's really, really tough. And how do we compare the impact of those fund managers, the fund performance, um, and balancing that with the burden that we place oftentimes on our entrepreneurs and fund managers to report that. So there's this constant struggle. And so I think that's what gives me pause is, is the fear of greenwashing, the rush of money because it's sexy and new, uh, and the, because of the inability to define metrics for, for impact, um, what's the long-term implication of that going to be? So I'll turn to, to TJ and Robert. We'll give you the last word since you're uh, gracious enough to give us more than an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say from my perspective, um, what gives me encouragement is um, just the people in the space. And, and um, there's, there are brilliant people working, um, and they're working from um, a, a true passion for um, using capital to um, improve the world around them. And an anecdote recently was a traditional um, fund manager coming to us, uh, a private fund manager. And they said, Hey, we're starting a new fund. Um, and we, we care deeply about this problem. Um, do you, do you all think we're an impact fund? <laughs> and that was a fun conversation because this is your, you, the, a person that you wouldn't necessarily consider to be in the space. And you know what, they have a pretty compelling impact case, um, for a traditional fund. And so I'm excited about that. That gives me a ton of encouragement. Um, what gives me pause, uh, you, you, Bryce, you kind of, you kind of, um, cleared out much of the, of the areas in which give me pause. Greenwashing is a big one because something like this can be sexy and without a way to showcase the impact side, um, it, it's pretty easy to be skeptical. Uh, I, I think that that's, um, that's certainly to be expected. And if there's a disruption in the market, uh, money will flee because it didn't really come for that reason in the first place. Yeah, for me, uh, what gives me hope? Um, I think I, I'm seeing slow, slowly, but in a very, very powerful sort of tectonic level of shift in how people view money. And I'm seeing that on a, a, a small conversation, day-to-day conversations with families and foundations, the board of the foundation, is that they want to do more. They, they simply want because uh, when we pose the question of what matters most to you, it's often not uh, often leads to something more than financial return. And so, and, and impact investing, ESG has provided an opportunity to express that throughout their portfolio. And so, I'm seeing that shift in mindset on, oh, I could be doing this too. And so, I'm really excited about that. Uh, what gives me pause? I think as we as this ecosystem scales uh, and a lot of capital come in, which is great. Um, I think there's a less and less focus on proximity. And I think proximity needs to be the, the central element of the journey of impact investor. Um, proximity to community, to the portfolio companies, to the GPs you, you invest as, a, as an LP, it gives you an understanding. Um, it builds relationships. And out of those, I've just seen how new innovative products can come out, right? That, that were not in the marketplace that are meeting new um, needs. And so, and then what proximity does is it gives you an information as an investor. And if, if you're a financial investor, one of the main advantages that you have to outperform a benchmark is access to information that others don't have. And I think sort of journey into community and understanding, sort of going back to that um, orphan student that I talked about, is understanding and meeting her, you know, her, her talent, right? And, and that gives you an advantage on knowing that there are people like that out there. Maybe you can underwrite a credit strategy around uh, funding education, right? And so I think, you know, sort of teeing up the the follow-on podcast where you guys have with different managers, they've, you know, they, they've done all that, right? They've gone to far ends of the, you know, different emerging markets, frontier markets, parts of the U.S. And I'm just really encouraged by the the intellect that they bring, the passion that they bring. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm in a way very, very encouraged by that too. And I think we're making progress. 
I think that's a really good word to go out on because I think the notion of proximity at Access we talk about this idea of user owner, uh, and so TJ's example of Ethic, for example. So we were early investors in Ethic. Super proud of that. Um, but because of that, I think where you are an owner, um, you become a super user. And or, I mean, rather, where you be, where you can be a super user if you're an owner, they mutually are beneficial, right? So, like in the military, for example, um, we were always told as officers, like expect what you inspect, right? So if if you're not going to inspect your soldiers, uh, following proper whatever, uh, why do you expect them to do anything differently? And I think there's that's just life. That's that's just how we are as people and so how can you expect your investment strategy to do anything differently if you're not willing to jump in and inspect it more thoughtfully more intentionally and so i think that's the idea of around conscious construction or proximity if you if you have a relationship in a community if you know those fund managers or those companies you get more excited about their success and their performance you get you become a champion um you you dive in roll up your sleeves and you get dirty going to work to help them be more successful their success is your success uh, and so this idea of win-win where the community is 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 winning while you're winning is is a beautiful picture uh, and i think that's ultimately what we want um, in in the world and so instead of this disconnected divorced portfolio that i really don't know anything about but it's getting me great returns and so i think what i get excited about and where we can close this episode is just seeing hopefully in the future uh that not be the norm uh that people know and are experiencing what that money is doing because it's not going into some the stock market actually goes and invests in real companies that impact real lives and real communities and so knowing that more intimately is, is really the goal this season we are super excited to dive deeper into what it takes to build a more consciously constructed and dynamic portfolio stay tuned next week as our conversation explores the fun and the complexity of aligning values and investments recognizing the moral obligation that we have to think more deeply about how our money impacts people, communities, and the environment around us. Also, at Access Ventures, we just released our 2020 annual report that we hope gives you a visual preview of some of the ways that we've sought to live this ideal and apply a one-pocket mindset to our mission of building a more inclusive and creative economy. Check out the show notes on this episode to learn more. Thanks again for listening to More Than Profit. And if you like what you heard, do us a favor by subscribing and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bryce Butler with Access Ventures. Thanks for listening.